Minnesota City. Happy New Year. We are excited to be back. It has been a little bit. We've taken quite a break. We took a we, we took We've a been working off. in the background though. We really have. I'm Dylan Gunnels, by the way, and joined by Ome Salma Rahimtula, and this is Soda, Soda City, City Speaks. Speaks. Thanks for joining us. Um, even though we took a month off. We appreciate you coming back. Yeah, we're real excited. I'm starting 2022 with real excited. Okay, we can do something different. <laughs> try that again, Dylan. Should I try again? Yeah, do it. I am stoked <laughs> about what we've got planned. <laughs> if the, But in all seriousness, if the content of the conversation of this episode is any indication of what the rest of the year is going to look like, I'm excited. I'm stoked. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time, I felt like a political podcast last year. It was very political. And so we spent a lot of time covering municipal elections and talking about, um, Columbia politics. And that was fun. That was good. That was important. But I'm excited because this year we are really going to hone in on food insecurity, housing justice, the history of Bull Street. Like we're talking about the COVID anniversary next, um, next episode. Yeah. Housing. Times two. Right? Can we say that? Times the two? second anniversary. <laughs> um, but yes, but this month we are um, we're taking a deep dive into what does food insecurity look like here mm-hmm. in Columbia, South Carolina, and how do we find ourselves out of that? How do we get out of that? How do we create a more just and equitable food system in the mm-hmm. city? So we we have two amazing guests who will be joining us in a bit. Well, we already sat with them (laughs) you will hear it in a bit and uh for the fizz we will bring you some clips from the swearing in ceremony of the mayor and the new mayor and the new council members which Mm -hmm. feels like two years ago it really does but it was last month yeah yeah Yeah. like to the date almost last month yes that's true um and so Back in 2022, let's start like we always do with our headlines. So uh, we'll move into the fizz and our interview related to food insecurity, and then we'll end with community listings. There we go. We're back. In January, Columbia and the Midlands experienced 11 earthquakes, according to the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. No major damage or injuries were reported from any of the earthquakes because they were small, around 2.5 magnitude. An explanation for the recent outburst has eluded scientists. Digging and blasting at mines, water seeping through the ground from lakes, or other changes in weight or pressure underground could all contribute to seismic activity, though it is unclear what has caused the ones in Colombia. Ivory Matthews, who has served as CEO of the Columbia Housing Authority for the past two and a half years, resigned from the position on Wednesday, January 26th. In March, Matthews will take over as executive director of Home Forward in Oregon, which is the state's largest affordable housing provider. She will be the first African-American woman to lead that agency. Former Chief Operating Officer Yvonne Bean will take over for Matthews on an interim basis. Dylan, I have a feeling you have a bit more to say about this story and the way that the Housing Commission, or the Housing Authority, sorry, has been run I mean, not even just under Miss Matthews' reign, but just overall. I love the face you're giving me. <laughs> Do you not want to say anything? There's you don't so have much to. I could say. But um, I mean, 
Do you think this is a, you know, more fresh start for the housing authority? Do you think we'll get somewhere now with it? I just think it's interesting. Um, At the end of last year, uh, we put our projected numbers together as an affordable housing task force, determining how many new affordable units we wanted to set as the goal for the coming years. Um, We were at a housing coalition meeting where we were talking about new initiatives with the housing authority. And so... I don't know. I I mean, opportunities come. I don't know Miss Matthews to say like whether she might have family in Oregon or maybe mm-hmm. there was an opportunity in that area that she's trying to go to that region. <laughs> um, I just it just came out of the blue to me. That yeah. that's the only commentary I guess I can give is that I thought it was very random considering. And I know like if you're in a position like that and you might know that something's coming, which it seems that she did, of course. Um, you're clearly not putting that out to the public. You're mm-hmm. still talking about your projected numbers and your future plans and all those things as if you're not right. going anywhere. So I get the optics of that, but it just felt like it came out of nowhere. And I, from the folks that I've talked to, it felt that way for them too. And she so, hadn't been in the position that long either. Two and right? a half years isn't very long yeah, for a housing long. authority. Yeah. Uh, for a position like that, that an mm-hmm. executive director mm-hmm. position, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, she she did good work while she was here. And um, I have my reservations about the housing authority, and I hope that structures and strategies are altering and changing for the better. Um, and I've met Miss Bean, and I think she's uh, very personable, and um, she has a story of her own mm-hmm. related to housing, and so I think this is personal for her. So certainly I think that part's going to be good. So, I you know, I don't know if that's commentary, but we'll – We'll see, we'll and I'm it. I'm staying hopeful. That's that's been my trajectory for this year with the city of Columbia. Is stay, <laughs> stay hopeful. hopeful. <laughs> um, so, in related news, our mayor, our new mayor, Rickman, is asking that the city's housing authority open uh, the search for the vacant position to the entire nation. So, Rickman proposes hiring a firm to conduct a nationwide search for the person. In a letter, he suggests the Florida-based firm Gans, Gans & Associate, which specializes in recruiting leaders for housing authorities across the country. The mayor is also asking that the Housing Authority Board publicize its candidates once individuals have been vetted to allow for public feedback before a final decision is made. That sounds interesting. And that's reasonable. I yeah. mean, I... I I'm interested with the third-party group, but I get the point. But I, I do think the last part there about public feedback mm-hmm. um, it's important. is very important and something that at times the Housing Authority has lacked, that public transparency. Mm-hmm. So St. Patrick's Day at Five Points is back. The Five Points Association formally heralded the return of the St. Pat's and Five Points Festival, which was sidelined in 2020 and 21 amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The St. Pat's Bash, which will be on March 19th this year, is perhaps the foremost festival on Columbia's calendar, routinely drawing as many as 40,000 revelers to the village. Grammy-winning band Blues Traveler will be one of the headliners of this year's celebration, which will be the 40th edition of the festival. So I don't know if you remember back in 2020, seven years ago, um, (laughs) St. Patrick's Day um, was really the first big columbia Mm -hmm. thing to be canceled like it really kind of set the tone Mm -hmm. for what covid might look like in this city and Mm -hmm. you know confirmed um 
the the pandemic as having arrived in our city. And, um, you know, I wonder if it coming back now is a sign that, you know, it's over. <laughs> I don't want to be like, you know, obviously the pandemic is not over and mm-hmm. we're dealing with like just incredible numbers right now. Um, but, you know, you were telling me about the press uh, conference and uh, how, you know, it seemed like the Five Points Association was like, we don't care about COVID numbers. We just care about the weather. Right. Like yeah. it's. And, and I don't know. I mean, we weren't there at the press conference. We don't know if that was the attitude, but it seems like maybe in our newspapers, that's the image that they're trying so, to put forward. Yeah. So that was actually, it was just an article, mm-hmm. not a press conference. Yeah. So it was an article that was written about the event and certainly the question was posed, you know, are you concerned about COVID numbers? And me bringing that up was more that I, for those of us that have ever been in the media or been interviewed, you know, you talk to that reporter for an extensive amount of time and then a few quotes get put in. Mm -hmm. And um, I just was interested how they framed it as it almost came across as we're not worried about COVID. We're more worried that it might rain. (laughs) And I, you know, maybe that is what was said. And but I, I feel like they're being more cautious than just like, oh, we don't care about a pandemic. We just care about right. the weather. Right. Um, so I I don't know. I guess for me, ultimately, and nobody really asked for my commentary on the I headline. always <laughs> ask for your commentary. But I think for me, um, it's kind of like what you said. I mean, the pandemic hit in March of 2020, quote, officially. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. That was the first major thing that was canceled in the city of mm-hmm. Columbia. And that was the first moment that it was like, oh. It's here. It's here. This is a big deal. This is real. And so I think that whether we agree or disagree, whether you like it, you don't. I mean, at the end of the day, it is your decision whether or not you attend. Mm-hmm. But I think that is kind of the goal is that it's an outside festival. Um, it is uh, we're seeing that we've already peaked Omicron. And so the hope is that by the time we get to March 19th, the numbers are back down. And I think it really is intended to be a a signifier of we're back. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think they want to let that go. Because, I mean, I was working in the arts at the time. And um you know, the cancellation of St. Patrick's Day really set the tone for us to cancel Indigrates yeah. and a lot of other festivals in the city. So I think, I mean, we might be back yeah. if, again, it is setting the tone for where we're going with COVID. Yeah. Well, yeah. and the mayor says we're open for business. Mildred Weathers McDuffie, who worked more than 30 years as a teacher and administrator in Richland County Schools, held elected office and served as a magistrate judge, has passed away. She was 87 years old. McDuffie taught at segregated high schools and elementary schools during the 1960s before serving as one of five people on a special committee that worked to connect teachers and school district officials during desegregation. McDuffie was inducted into the school district's Hall of Fame in 2020 and 2019. The city of Columbia named a stretch of King Street for McDuffie near her home. A $33 million project to build hundreds of apartments aimed at first responders, nurses, and teachers has broken ground in southeast Columbia. The villages at Congaree Point will include 240 apartments on the 15-acre site on Atlas Road. Crews have begun clearing the property, and construction could be finished in the fall of 2023. Armada bought the Atlas Road property from Bible Way Church, 
headquartered just down the road and pastored by State Senator Daryl Jackson. Some of the city of Columbia's new leaders have an idea to combat a rise in gun violence in the capital city and beyond. A special state court to deal exclusively with those charged with gun crimes. The politician said such a court could help clear a backlog of cases created by the COVID-19 pandemic and help keep repeat gun offenders off the street in the state's largest cities, though some question whether there's a need in the state's judicial system. The court would have to be created by state lawmakers as municipal courts don't try felony crimes. Mayor Rickman and Councilmember Taylor asked that city lobbyists begin pushing the concept at the state house. A fixture of the food and drink scene on Columbia's Main Street has closed its doors for good. Oh. <laughs> My I wasn't ready effect. for that. Drip on Main, the coffee shop on the ground floor of the office building on Main Street has closed after nearly nine years. The business had been temporarily closed because of a staffing shortage since late October. The drip location on Saluda Avenue and Five Points and its related neighboring Scoopy-Doo Gelato Shop remain open. Owner McCrossan told the state that lingering issues from the COVID-19 pandemic, including staffing shortage concerns, played into his decision to shut the Main Street shop and put more focus on the Five Points stores. I and will miss it. I will miss it too. The that was the spot. Like at 8 a.m., it was mm-hmm. packed with like people having meetings, like nonprofits and politicians and like mm-hmm. business people. Just that was like everyone's second it office. It was a hot spot. It was, but I do like the Five Points location. Cause I love the Five Points location. It's but... not so, um, you know, filled with politicians and such. <laughs> so that's a nice spot. It's more hipster in Five Points. Yes, it's very hipster in Five Points. I love it. I love the vibe, even compared to all the other kind of coffee shops that have been popping up in this mm-hmm. neighborhood. Um, you know, like uh, there's Bloom mm-hmm. and Azalea, Azalea, which I like Azalea. I really <laughs> like the, the feel of Five Points Drift. It, it, it bring, you know, it brings me back to my hipster coffee yeah. days. And uh, but But fear not, y'all. Dylan is opening a coffee shop in that whoa, spot whoa, whoa. on Main Street. So just watch out for that. Dylan just said he would love to have that space. <laughs> Dylan doesn't have the money for that space. But if anybody's looking to invest, hit me up. Hit him up, you know, SodaCitySpeaks at gmail.com. Oh, the Soda City Speaks Cafe. We're yeah. Oh, we are on. This could something. be fun, y'all. Investors, hit us up. Ethical investors. At gmail.com. <laughs> and that's it for your headlines credited to the state. The Post and Courier, and Cola Today. And now it's time for The Fizz. So today on The Fizz, we just have a few clips uh, from the inauguration ceremony that was held on January 4th on Main Street. Um, It was, of course, supposed to be taking place at the convention center, and last minute they canceled it because of the rise in Omicron. Um, and closed down Main Street, threw up a lot of chairs, a lot of screens. It looked, it looked pretty nice. They eh? did a good job. Yeah, I really, and by the way, it was January 4th. It was January 4th. be on the record. Um, but no, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was very well done. I thought it was professional. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish, as always, this is me from last year, you know, I wish people were more engaged. But I also recognize it was at like 3 o'clock on a yeah. Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. Um, so it's difficult for everybody to get there, but I, I did think that they did a great job. Um, I enjoyed the speeches, um, and 
I'm staying hopeful. All right. Staying hopeful, our mantra for 2020. That's our so mantra. But, but at the same time, sorry. No, go ahead. At the same time, I, um, I'm excited for Fresh Faces, mm-hmm. and, and I don't mm-hmm. ever want to discredit that. I'm excited mm-hmm. for the Fresh Faces, new ideas, new perspectives. Um, you can never go wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know me. I want the centerpiece to always be equity. Yep. And so we'll see how it goes. Here are some clips from that inauguration ceremony. Welcome. At this time, and I'll be right back up as I try to act as your mistress of ceremonies today, so work with me. We are going to welcome Bishop Theodore Jenkins Sr., the presiding bishop of the Progressive Church of Our Lord Jesus Christ Incorporated to deliver the invocation and remain standing, please, for the presentation of colors by the City of Columbia Color Guard and playing of the National Anthem. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this day. We are praying today, Father, for your will to be done in the city of Columbia as it is in heaven. We thank you in a special way for those who have already served to our outgoing mayor and our outgoing Congress council members. And as we look to you today, we ask you a special blessing upon our newly elected mayor and the newly elected three council members, that you may bless them and give them wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to guide such a great city as Columbia. Give them eyesight like an eagle to be able to see a fall so that the city of Columbia can continue to grow and be as good as it should be. Also, Father, help them as they deliberate. Let them be wise as a serpent but yet humble as a dove, that they may attain wisdom and knowledge to guide this great city of Columbia to higher heights and deeper depths. These blessings we ask in your precious name, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. This is a very special occasion for the city of Columbia family, and we are so thankful for your presence and and all of Columbia citizens in person and hopefully watching us at home. With this moment, we will move into our period for the oaths of office, which will be administered now as outlined on your program. Each elected official will offer brief remarks after being sworn in. So Dr. Bustles, yes. Now, first up, Councilwoman-elect Oddity Bustles at large to be administered, the oath of office to be administered by the Honorable Jean Heffer Toll, the retired Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of South Carolina. Well, it ended up being a beautiful day to celebrate the future of our capital city and I am incredibly grateful to be here, joined by friends, family, and leaders in the community today. So, as we start 2022 together, I'm especially encouraged to see faces representing all corners of Columbia, but I'm even more excited to see people in the next generation of leadership and folks that came out today that have never, ever gotten involved in local politics until this cycle. Maybe some of you have had that thought, that spark, that idea that you can do something to serve your community. But maybe you've also had that doubt, that persistent anxiety, 
My advice to you is this. You are capable. Do it and do it to the fullest extent. This community needs people who believe in something better for our families and for our neighbors. Trust me, I know it's not easy to step out of your comfort zone and make a difference. Because from the very start of my campaign, many people told me I couldn't do it. Many were skeptical that I could bring people together from all walks of life and different political backgrounds. I was a political outsider. But I kept going. Why? Because our community is worth it. Columbia is worth it. South Carolina is worth it. Well, next up, we will have the oath being administered for Councilwoman-elect Tina N. Herbert, District 1, administered by the Honorable Allison Renee Lee, a circuit court judge. Well, hello, Columbia. I am so tremendously humbled by the opportunity to serve our city, the city of Columbia. It is the city that I was born and bred in on the other end of this main street. It is the city that I graduated from high school from. It is the city where my daughter was born. It was the city where I had my first job as an attorney. And it is the city where I bought my first home. And so I'm forever thankful and I'm grateful to be here. And because you all have sacrificed and supported me, then I am more than committed to making sure that every citizen in the city of Columbia, no matter where you're from, no matter what side of town you live on, no matter how much money you make or money that you don't make, that you know that you have access to quality education, that you have safe housing, affordable housing, that you have vibrant communities, and that you enjoy your city, the city of Columbia. And with that, our next council person to be, Councilman-elect Joe E. Taylor, Jr., District 4, to, to have the oath of office administered by the Honorable Costa M. Placonis, retired Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of South Carolina. Wow, let me say first, thank Amanda and Ann and John. I mean, what do they say? Behind every successful man, there is a, a strong woman, and that's certainly true in my house. And I've said this many times over the last several months, and I learned it when I was the Secretary of Commerce, that frankly, local offices, Mr. Mayor, local offices play a bigger role in people's day-to-day -day lives than I think any other position really in government. And, uh, and I'm delighted to see the folks behind me the mayor, the new mayor, our sheriff, police chief, because that's the kind of leadership we all deserve, you know, in our, in our local offices. Let me just say Columbia is my hometown. Wouldn't have what I, what I have today if it weren't for the bankers here, the business community here that mentored me, and just general support that my family have received over the years. And this is, frankly, nothing more than, for me, a chance to give back to the city I love, and make sure the opportunities today are just as good for you, for your children, and for your grandchildren as they were when I came home after college. And now for the oath of office for our mayor-elect, Daniel J. Rickman, to be administered by the Honorable John Cannon Pew, Justice of the Supreme Court of South Carolina. You know what they say in Columbia, well, well, well. Um, first of all, I want to thank Columbia. I want to thank everybody for being here on this cold January day. I want to thank 
my wife, Dr. Laura Rickenman, my two daughters, Ellie and Carlisle, for all your support that you've given me. And thank you to all of you who have shown up today. You know, when I first moved here, I fell in love with this city. I went to school here. I met my wife here. I raised my family here. We chose to make Columbia our home. Columbia is a great city. All over this capital city, you'll find kind, hardworking people. When I graduated from USC right up the road, I saw all the opportunities this city had to offer. The conditions were right for building and growing a business, and the people of Columbia were inviting and supportive. As an entrepreneur, I could not help but notice the inefficiencies in the way our city operated. The experience I had with government here that enlightened me to unintentional barriers our systems had created. So I ran for council to make a change. I wanted it to be easier for people to live, work, and raise a family here. Before I was even sworn in, I went to work in every department of our city. I wanted to learn about our departments, their processes, see what could be improved. I had been on a ride along, I had driven a garbage truck, I've been down a manhole, and yes, I have looked over the books in accounting. This showed me that there were opportunities for growth around every corner. It didn't discourage me, but helped me strengthen my sense of pride in our city, in our people, and it gave me hope that Columbia's bright future, just ahead, working together, we can open up our community, make it a place where opportunities are for every person in every corridor in every neighborhood that can happen. In Columbia, we will have open arms for everyone. We'll be a compassionate city that doesn't help people just get along, but helps every community thrive. We will make sure that our sidewalks and our streets and our schools in every corner of this city are clean and of quality that make residents proud. We will provide a hand up to those in need in our streets so that they can stand up on their own. We'll increase home ownership, create generational wealth so that the future generations get a head start. We open up our arms to those in danger, make our streets safe to walk in in every neighborhood at any hour. Columbia will be open for business, folks. We will make it easier to start a business here, invest in our great city and its people. We will work towards reducing taxes and fees that close the gap that, that are between surviving and thriving. It shouldn't take millions of dollars to take advantage of an opportunity in this city. It should only take determination and effort. We will make our city government modernized and streamlined so that our systems and our processes don't delay a chance at opportunity for our citizens. We will work with our great universities and colleges to showcase the talent in our city. Let's make Columbia a place where students, a massive economic engine I might say, want to stay, build a business, and raise a family. We will take advantage of every opportunity to make life better for our citizens. Columbia's government will be open and transparent. We will communicate with our citizens so they have a voice in every action we take. We'll show the people what's working and what's not. We will share information with the citizens so that, that we'll show where we're succeeding and how and where we can improve. We will work with our partners to ensure that tax dollars are spent wisely and efficiently for, for the benefit of all of our citizens. If you live, work, or go to school in Columbia, you're invested in our success. This is a partnership. 
We want to work with you. We're going into your community, listening to what your priorities are, and see how we can help. Tell us what you like and what you don't like so that we can see how to improve. We are going to do better because we have to do better because the future of our city depends on our shared success. I want to thank all of you for putting your trust in me to be your mayor. You heard our ideas, our goals, and now you've given us a chance to go to work for all of you. I appreciate this trust. I won't let you down. We will thrive together. As this new year begins, we start a new chapter in Columbia, and I can't help but be excited. The sense of opportunity seems brighter than ever. The next four years will be exciting, and I look forward to getting to work. But I can't go without mentioning small businesses that are the backbone of this community because today would have not happened if it wasn't for all those small businesses that came out today. Thank you, we support you, and we're glad you're open. So with that, I declare the city of Columbia is now open. We're open for business. We're open for investments. We're open for ideas. We're open for collaboration. And most of all, we're open arms for all. God bless you all and thank you. Okay, and welcome back. Welcome back, and we're talking about food in our next segment. Mm -hmm. So we were really lucky to be joined by Ashley and Christina, who are um, just amazing women and and you know amazing um, organizers here in the city, working towards a more equitable food system. Mm -hmm. So we really enjoyed our conversation with them. It was, I mean. Listen to it, and you will be pleasantly surprised, mm -hmm. I think, that we're not talking about a scarcity of food. We're talking about just how, you know, capitalism does not make it possible for everyone to eat, and mm -hmm. that's that's just disheartening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what I really loved about the conversation was, and I joked about it in the beginning, um, just the wealth of knowledge, though, and I, and I stand by that. <laughs> the wealth of knowledge that was at this table um, for that conversation. And, you know, I, I think I talk about this when we have the conversation, so I'll keep this brief, but I think the more that you educate yourself, the more that you open your eyes to the society around you, the more that you listen to experiences and perspectives of people that, um, are on the margins, um, you recognize that this is a real problem. Mm -hmm. Like food insecurity is real. Um, and it's real right here in our backyard. It's right real in the quote, greatest country in the world, the wealthiest nation in the world. It's real. Um, but what lends us to thinking that it's not real and kind of just glossing over. And I love that we dug into that a lot. And I love that we also dug into the fact that it's not just about the physical food that you're eating. Mm -hmm. It's also about the food workers mm -hmm. um, and how disregarded they are when it comes to wages and when it comes to quality working environments. And so this conversation about food insecurity, again, is not just about having food on the table. It's about access and health and um, labor. And it's so intersection, in intersectional, intersectional. Hey, I did it. <laughs> and, um, 
I don't know. I just I hope that listeners will really open their ears and their eyes um, mm-hmm. to really receive this information and do something about it. Mm-hmm. It's really about a system. Mm-hmm. It's intersectional and it's so many parts. So mm-hmm. take a listen and we'll catch you on the other side. So to City Speaks, <laughs> Happy New Year. We are excited to bring you a fresh episode in this new year and really start digging into the issues um, that Ome and I are excited to talk about that aren't just related to a municipal election. <laughs> Highly important, but I'm ready to move on. So I feel outnumbered today. I'm surrounded by three amazing women who work in food policy. Um, and we are excited to talk about food policy, food insecurity, and what that looks like right here at home. So why don't we just do a little round of introductions? Tell us who's here and what do you do? Okay, well, I guess it's up to me. Uh, Ashley Page Bookhart, I am the past immediate chair of the Columbia Food Policy Committee, but also work at USC in the SNAP-Ed department, and I'm a program coordinator there. Christina, Thanks, Ashley. So wonderful to be here with y'all. My name is Christina Spock. I'm the Food Policy Campaigns Coordinator for Food Chain Workers Alliance. We're a binational coalition of 34 worker justice organizations organizing to improve wages and working conditions for food workers all across the supply chain. As Dylan said, I too do work in food policy. I'm the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Food Share South Carolina. And Food Share South Carolina is a food justice organization that is working to make fruits and vegetables accessible and affordable for families in South Carolina. Uh, one of our main programs that people know us um, by is that we have a biweekly uh, produce box, bulk buying produce box program. Ashley, tell me what is snap it. <laughs> yes, I will say I am not the nutritionist. People are like, oh, can you sign me up for SNAP? And can you teach me how to cook? I can't do either of those two. <laughs> but what we do do at USC, we can help implement policy systems and environmental change around the various food systems. So that might be starting a community garden. It may be, you know, policy work or, you know, also we do some evaluation work. So that is pretty much, I just want to make sure the people know, don't call me to sign you up for your SNAP benefits because can't do that. And don't call me to teach you how to cook something because can't do that either. <laughs> if you need to sign up for SNAP benefits, you can go to SE Appleseed and they have, um, a, a form where you can see how much you might get and then it can show you how to sign up for stuff. <laughs> and Food Share does nutrition classes too, yeah? Food Share does nutrition classes, yes. We do a box delivery program. We're expanding the model uh, across the state. So there's a lot of other things that accompany that, that, you know, the, but the flagship program is the produce box, yeah. Awesome. All right. So also we will add that Ashley is the former chair of the Columbia Food Policy Committee. Uh, Christina, are you still on the committee? No, former member. Former member. I'm currently a member. Um, so why don't we... Oh, Dylan is also a member. I forgot. <laughs> He's like, how about me? He has his hand up in the... So before we get started talking about what food insecurity and food justice looks like or could look like in Columbia, um, not... Too long ago, um, the city of Columbia established the Columbia Food Policy Committee. Uh, so Ashley or Christina, can you tell us what that is? Why was that done? And how is that um, a part of um, what food justice could look like in the city? So the committee was founded back in 2017. 
So we're now, oh, in 2022. So we are almost approaching, yeah, five years. This summer will be um, the fifth year of existence for the Columbia Food Policy Committee. And, you know, folks who are from the Columbia area, we're just going to have a real conversation today. And the real is we've lost a lot of grocery stores. So there is a report by uh, Sisters of Charity that shows from 2016 to 2020, Richland County has lost the most amount of grocery stores across our 46 counties in our state at the number of 12. So that is a lot. So thinking about, you know, 2016, so 2017 is happening. We're hearing conversations about some of the grocery stores, uh, you know, are, are, are looking at or have started to close. Particularly, I can think of the Piggly Wiggly that used to be on West Beltline. So when you think of that, you know, a lot of, you know, now, you know, during that time also, people started getting really interested in the local food system and what does that look like and how, how can we help it? How can we support local? All of these various things. And so I think kind of a culmination of, you know, what was happening locally, of the departure of healthy food access, as well as interest in how can we enhance our overall uh, local food system really helped kind of moved. Uh, you know, at that time, it was it was Mayor Benjamin had a conversation to, with with some folks who were really interested in how can we bring about a, a food policy council. So I really think that is kind of what helped lead to us starting this and is since you know five years ago it has morphed into a lot more um but definitely i think even so when you think about it we're we're young we're like a baby in the food policy committee realm because five years or almost five years is not a long time but i think a little mm -hmm. bit further in the conversation where we talk about you know some things we have done some things we're looking at hopefully people will say wow this committee is is trying to do some good and hopefully um you know we are always open to for folks wanting to be a part of you know subcommittees or even soon we'll have a spot that's available uh, we have someone that had to step down so we'll also soon have a position open so definitely hoping you know if, if this conversation interests you would love to have you involved in the columbia food policy committee ashley you mentioned uh the closing of a lot of grocery stores christina what other um factors impact the food system in Colombia? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, this like this term of food insecurity, meaning that folks don't really always have enough food. And mm -hmm. we know that many people in our communities locally across the state, across the nation are really struggling to feed their families. Um, in communities like North Colombia, which is predominantly black community, we know that 70 percent of the residents there lack access to healthy, affordable food. And so um, communities of color also are disproportionately impacted by food insecurity. And even though there's been a number of grocery stores that have closed, there's, uh, there's, that's only one factor, yeah? So Karen Washington, uh, who's a black farmer in New York City, one of the things that she often lifts up is that the lack of access to healthy, affordable food isn't just about the proximity to a grocery store, that her term of food apartheid um, centers uh, this connection between food insecurity and also poverty and low wages, mm -hmm. uh, structural racism and corporate consolidation and how these things manifest themselves in, in our local communities. And so, for example, awesome to have a grocery store open up in 29203. It sounds like there's a lot of motivation 
uh, to do that right now. And at the same time, if that grocery store is just going to pay low wages Mm -hmm. to those grocery workers, if they're going to retaliate against workers who speak up um, for themselves and the health and safety of their fellow workers on the job, then we're also seeing the cycle perpetuate. So I think one thing that um, we've tried to do in our conversations at Columbia Food Policy Committee and Food Chain Workers Alliance and, and I think broadly within the food movement is really take a step back and look at look at it systemically, right? And when we do, we see that the food system the foundation of it is rotten. Mm -hmm. So number one, we've got the historical and and cultural reality of racism, that our food system is rooted in the history of slavery and colonization, and that still shapes conditions today. And then secondly, there's just a handful of corporations that control, like have near total control of our food Mm -hmm. supply. And so, so for example, four companies uh, control 80% of the meatpacking industry. We've got Walmart that controls a quarter of the grocery market owned by one of the richest families in the world. Amazon owns Whole Foods, moves a lot of food through their distribution and warehouse warehouses around the country, owned by the richest man in the world, and they're the second largest employer. So what does that mean for our local communities? It means that we have very little control over our food system, over where our food comes from, the quality of that food, and also how workers in these supply chains are being treated. So um, just you know, being mindful of these realities, right, when we're doing our collective work, uh, whether that is related to food systems or policy or public health. I want to add in terms of um, just how interconnected, I think, poor labor standards and poor labor pay is with the food system is that when you apply for a job at Walmart and part of your onboarding is to apply for SNAP benefits. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's Mm -hmm. staggering what we're doing. And Mm -hmm. like you said, corporate consolidation, it's SNAP and benefits. And I think they're great. Don't tell I mean, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't help people who need the help. But so those SNAP benefits um, that are being paid to low wage workers end up just being a subsidy to corporations, right? So what Mm -hmm. we're doing is paying the difference that Walmart's not paying, Mm -hmm. for example, right? So just the intricacies of that system are so important to the conversation. Kind of that holistic conversation, and this can go to any of you, that holistic conversation. And because I think, I'm sorry, I think that you, I think that as you either get older, as you get more education related to um, sociology and legislation and politics um, and just people's basic needs, Um, And also you start to understand these systemic issues that have been caused Mm -hmm. that, like you were saying, it still shapes the things that we're doing today. Mm -hmm. It seems like it all points, it starts to point back to this idea of basic needs and you start to go, why in the world in this country of all places are we still having conversations Mm -hmm. about basic needs like food, water, shelter, Mm -hmm. healthcare, education, So specifically to food, though, because I think sometimes for folks that maybe are not exposing themselves as much to these conversations, and let's just be real, people who do have an element of privilege that in their head food access is I go to Whole Foods, I get my groceries, I go home, I cook dinner. And that's not a slight to anybody that has that access. But to them, it's like, oh, these issues aren't real. 
Mm-hmm. Why do organizations like Harvest Hope and Feeding mm-hmm. America exist? Like, this isn't where the hunger is an issue in this country. Why is it? Why are we still having this conversation in this country of all places? I think that's a really good question. But I think I think Christina alluded to this earlier. You know, this is not a, a personal individual issue. Mm-hmm. This is a societal mm. issue. And so to me, when you talk about basic needs, you know, coming from a social work perspective, having my little yeah. social work degree, you have things that you as an individual want to do. And then you have things that, like you said, should be afforded to you just for being being here for somebody wanting to pop you out and produce you <laughs> into the world. There are certain things that you should be able to yes. have. And so, you know, w- when you look at this, I think, you know, we think about dignity, the way we look at, you know, what things should be afforded to people. Um, you know, it all comes down to what really is the issue of hunger. Mm. And once we stop looking at it as, you know, you chose to not, you know, work some kind of job to, you know, afford your child to be able to eat. You chose to not do certain things. Well, you chose to live at, at that location where you knew that you weren't going to have access to food. When we stop looking at it as, as a you thing and looking at nobody wants to be on SNAP. Like, literally, there is not a single person I have talked to. Now, I'm coming also from a privileged perspective of my family never had to be on SNAP, never had to go. So I work in a space where also I know I'm afforded certain privileges because I cannot directly relate to mm-hmm. the issue from experience. Mm. All I can do is talk to people and what education, what the social work degree said I should do. Yeah. But when we look at it as no one wants to do this, no one wants to, when you say fill out a job application, no one wants to say, oh, well, yeah, I also got to apply for SNAP. No one wants to have to have the stigma of pulling out a WIC card pulling out a snap card no one wants to do these things and so when you look at it to me it all comes down to why are people hungry people are hungry because people are poor Mm. so i think when you look at it it's not a you know a personal issue once we look at starving poverty and i know there's other things out there there's the universal income and all these other things now that are starting to come out But a person should not have to go to Walmart, work 40, 45, 50 hours, and still have to apply for SNAP. Still can't bring home the amount of of money to afford adequate housing. Mm -hmm. So now not only do I have to use SNAP, but now I'm having to go talk to HUD and whoever my local you know, HUD provider is to see how can I get, you know, rental assistance or how can I get, you know, housing assistance. Those things shouldn't have to happen. So I think, you know, it's not hopefully folks look at, you know, no one wants to do these things because these things are humiliating for people to have to do. So hopefully people see that, you know, most folks who are on SNAP aren't, you know, the stereotypical welfare queen that came about in in the Reagan era. You're driving the Cadillac and you're milking the system. This is not what we have in 2022. These are working people who are doing the very best that they can that unfortunately aren't getting paid what they should to be able to afford the lifestyle that they deserve. And so hopefully, you know, we can start changing the narrative, uh, you know, and the perspectives that society are trying to place on individuals that, unfortunately find themselves where they have to go without a meal every now and then because they're deciding rent they're deciding light bills they're deciding medical bills that's a whole nother issue we can get into because 
you know, how our state and other places are, but those are real factors. So hopefully, you know, we can't look at it from an individual perspective. We have to talk about, like, like you said, I always say to me, if America lives up to, we always say America is the greatest country. If we truly are the greatest country, we have to live by that. Mm -hmm. And that's making sure no matter if you're the thousandaire or the millionaire or the zeroanaire, <laughs> that certain things we make sure we provide for yes. you because you're American. Yes. And we, we protect and we care about our American people. And so I think that's the perspective. Those are the conversations we have to, you know, yeah. really have to start having and be intentional about kind of that that neighborhood village aspect you know yes. the like the african proverb you know is a village way that you raise children and so if we take that same perspective and look at how we village raise people and make sure all people have certain things that they should have yeah. hopefully we wouldn't have to have people go hungry maybe situational hunger something happens sure. you know it's situational but there should not have to be where we're dealing with you know impoverished and, and repetitive Hung, hunger as 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 a nation. Mm -hmm. I was just like this American exceptionalism. I understand oh, the I'm question, <laughs> but I am I don't condone. Like the yeah. question is like, why does poverty exist everywhere? Mm -hmm. Like why do we have a, a global system that creates enough food to feed the world over twice? Mm -hmm. Right, and we're we're looking at issues of poverty and distribution, and it's not just about you know the greatest country in the world, which. Mm -hmm quite frankly, you know, like you can't even, you know, you can't even pay, you can't even get healthcare here, you know? <laughs> so like, I mean, my, like everyone mm -hmm. deserves food. Everyone should have access to that food. And you know, it's what Christina says, it's corporate consolidation. Mm -hmm. Listen, man, it's capitalism. It's capitalism. Mm -hmm. all Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At the end Please. of the day, you know, capitalism is always going to prioritize profit over people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I think what, what you're mm -hmm. saying, Ashley, like ultimately it's about democratic control over our food system mm -hmm. and our food in order for us to be able to really reverse this rampant mm -hmm. poverty and exploitation, you know, right, right. exploitation of our people and our workers, um, the corporate control, the sexism, the racism, how all of these things really show up. Food system is just kind of a microcosm for like that right. larger right. context, right. right? So I guess let's bring it back home then, because I know this is... Soda City Speaks. <laughs> but I can't help myself. I, I think, like, people, again, have to have that global understanding of what we're talking about here. Yeah, so bringing it back home then, what are some of the recommendations of the Food Policy Committee to solve some of these issues here at home? One of the things that... Uh, that Ashley brings up a lot is like how we, in our initial conversations, how we looked around the table and we realized that everybody gets paid to do this work, mm. right? That was part of the Columbia Food Policy Committee membership. And if our task is to provide policy recommendations and, and programmatic recommendations mm. to the city uh, related to food insecurity, we needed to make sure that those that were most impacted, our, our community residents, were front and center, um, and that were really shaping those recommendations. So that's why pretty early on, um, together we launched the what we call the food equity team. Essentially, it was a, a, you know, doing just that mm -hmm. and hosting a series of community gatherings. There was five um, that were done, and then also a community town hall. So essentially, uh, a, a, a series of community dialogues and then created draft recommendations came back to the to that um 
same group of community members to make sure that we had heard correctly and um, they voted on what should be top priorities. And we wanted to pay people. There was just a little bit of grant funding, so we ended up um, partnering with Bonita Clemens, who's a black farmer and entrepreneur, to, to cater to provide dinners for folks that were attending. And then also FoodShare provided produce boxes. Um, but I think one of the things that came out of that were some recommendations around um, tax incentives. So local business, giving tax incentives to local businesses who were paying a living wage, providing paid sick days and health benefits, um, who were hiring returning citizens, uh, providing tax incentives to businesses of color, recognizing they don't have the same opportunities, and then also funding to community organizations um, so that they uh, could uh, help um, in terms of the, the food access projects and also have access to public lands for produce stand, pop-up produce stands and, and food production. But also we learned in that process that there, um, you know, our hands were tied in some ways in terms of labor. There are preventative or preemptive labor laws that were passed mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. the state legislature. So what that means is that no municipality in our state can pass a policy to guarantee paid sick days to all workers in that city. They can't pass uh, an ordinance that guarantees living wages for mm -hmm. our workers. Um, whereas in other cities, these might be tools uh, <laughs> that folks implore in order to ensure that workers are able to you know, feed their families and, and keep their families safe and, and food secure. Did you want to add something to that? I, I think you, you, you've nailed everything, Christina. The only thing I will say, uh, so kind of as, as Christina said, th those five categories. So looking at number one thing we heard was access to healthy food, which I'm assuming folks, uh, you, you're talking about, you know, when we talked earlier on that, that overview of what were the conditions, what was happening locally that kind of helped spur uh, the, the fruition of the Food Policy Committee. I'm sure folks, y'all can understand. People are like, yeah, all that other stuff, that's real nice. But right now, just give me access to healthy food. Yeah. You know, then we could talk about, you know, some incentives, all of that good business stuff. You know, the third was making sure impacted populations. So some of our most vulnerable is looking at maybe, you know, individuals who may have graduated from one of our wonderful schools out of our school districts, uh, you know, but maybe they don't want to go to college. Maybe they don't want to go directly. So, you know, maybe, you know, they are a formerly uh, incarcerated individual and they want to resume and, and come out and, li and live a healthy life. So making sure also folks who are, have been marginalized, who have been vulnerable, that they can see uh, the local food system is a wonderful opportunity to start a career, but also be able to provide for themselves and a, and a family uh, if, if that's their situation as well. And then, like Christina said, you know, the land. So if the city has any land, if the city has buildings, that that could be used for agricultural purposes. And then also that transportation piece. So I think that's a, you know, very important. And, and I will say the Comet has done a lot because we have more than what some cities do, even cities like larger than Columbia by being able to have kind of that Comet to the market. So it's a program that the Comet is still running where they give you $8 to use Uber if you are in a certain area to, to uh, grocery stores and even in some instances, farmers markets to be able to access and buy your groceries, then you get $8 back. So $16 round trips are also trying to encourage additional 
programs like that. And so all of those recommendations, kind of those are our aspirational areas, and those were unanimously passed by city council back in December 2019. Then I'm sure y'all can understand COVID happened. <laughs> so, like, you know, we're working on those recommendations as, as we speak. Um, you all know we just got four new members of council, so definitely kind of where we are is trying to have conversations with, with council um, to look at a plan as things have changed. You know, we got four new folks in, but trying to develop a plan to make some of these recommendations, not just something we're looking at in black and white on paper, but become reality. So that's kind of... You know, I guess we just, just sum that up, that those aspirational areas were approved unanimously by the city council back in 2019, but definitely want to make sure that we're, we know this is a new council, but we want to work with them on the implementation phase of, of those recommendations. There's the political rhetoric that comes with it, but like you're talking about the state passing legislation that keeps municipal from enacting a livable wage or offering like why i'm a big why person like get get help me get past the political jargon what's the incentive for a state legislature to do that capitalism (laughs) (laughs) that's always always the answer Mm -hmm. really but i mean you could in a state like this it's like you know how will small small businesses survive and i imagine that's the the rhetoric the entity, the city council, the town council, whatever it may be, that's their decision to make, not the state's. We have a violent history mm. of um, worker organizing and, and unionizing. Unions are a really bad word mm-hmm. in this state, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's also, it comes down to power. It comes down to power. And I, I and, and somehow they feel like they're going to lose something mm-hmm. if they're empowering workers within the workplace. But at this, you know, I, I think what what it doesn't acknowledge is that our ability to feed ourselves directly relies on the food workers mm-hmm. <laughs> and all along the supply chain. And so that includes our, our farm workers, food processors, truck drivers, mm-hmm. folks that work in grocery stores and restaurants. Many of them we don't see. Many of them we don't come in contact mm-hmm. with, right? But uh, frontline food workers, we know, are predominantly people of color, women, and immigrants. Um, They are the lowest paid worker in the United States, which means, as Ome was pointing out earlier, it makes them vulnerable and much more dependent um, on public assistance. It makes them food insecure. Um, We know that they're subjected to very hazardous, dangerous working conditions, uh, high rates of injury and illness. And this was like Mm -hmm. way before COVID, Mm -hmm. right? Um, We know that the lack of job security means that uh, they're also, they they often face wage theft and, and racial discrimination. And so with the start of the pandemic, everybody was saying food workers are essential, which is a great, important acknowledgement. But the fact is that they've always been a essential to making sure that we have food on our table every day and they continue not to be treated as such so if we just look at um the meatpacking industry for example um food chain workers alliance members like vincent amos in arkansas and rural community workers alliance in missouri for example they've been um supporting meatpacking workers 
who have been fighting for years for better protections on the job. And that's because folks are working on an assembly line, they're working with um, sharp knives, uh, and they often, over time, can get carpal tunnel syndrome. As a Like, they have to mm-hmm. quit work because of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or workers have reported for years that they don't have proper bathroom breaks, and some of them have to wear diapers as a result. Um, that they don't have enough time to stop and cover their mouths when they cough because the line is moving too fast. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hit. And meatpacking facilities became hot spots. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and not just for the workers there and the meatpacking facilities, right? Yeah. Community hotspots as a result. And at the same time, big companies like Tyson and Smithfield were applying to the federal government to speed up those assembly lines because they said that they were keeping the supply chain going when we know that a lot of that meat was going for export and they were using this as leverage for increasing profit, right? At the same time that workers were working shoulder to shoulder uh, without enough uh, personal protective equipment. And so um, when you look at the numbers, Fern online uh, was tracking the, these numbers um, up until last September. And so they said, so at least we know that 60,000 meatpacking workers contracted COVID Mm -hmm. and nearly 300 of them died. And now Reuters just came out with a report saying, we think that that's at least, there's, it's at least three times higher than previously estimated. And it's not just in Arkansas, Missouri. Columbia farm workers, remember, they walked out in protests last year. They were saying the same thing, lack of hazard pay, lack of PPE, working shoulder to shoulder. And Tyson's coming back. Tyson is coming back. They are coming back. I read that Mm -hmm. this morning, yeah. Me me too. Uh Uh-huh, and they're Mm -hmm. so excited about the millions of dollars. Yes, I think it's like 44, 46 Uh million that the county's supposed to be obtaining. Uh And what is the company here, the chicken processing, in West Columbia? Columbia Farms. Farms. It's oh, Columbia Farms. That's House right. of Rayford, I yeah, think. Yeah, House right. of Rayford, yeah. But you're right. I mean, so these are the ways that food workers are dehumanized, right? How they're treated as disposable. And it's not just meatpacking. We know that, like, this is happening all across the supply chain. I just want to so, point out one, one real quick thing to what Christina said and how our food system is vital. That is the number one industry in the state of South Carolina is agriculture and forestry. The number one industry. We can talk all day about how many tourists we bring into Myrtle Beach and Hilton Head and Charleston. The number one industry are the people that are helping our local food system. Mm. And so like Christina said, like putting that into perspective, putting that into perspective is what does that mean for us as, as a state, but also what does that mean for us locally? That matters. Because they're making a lot of revenue for the state of South Carolina. So we need to make sure that we're treating them as such. Mm -hmm. And so let's just sum that up real quick and we can move on to the next topic. Um, Just in layman's terms, what you said and what you said together, essentially our food care workers that our economy in South Carolina is most dependent on and the individuals that we're most dependent on to stuff our faces mm-hmm. and eat our food mm-hmm. are the ones who are the most impoverished, discriminated, and dehumanized. Mm-hmm. 
I just want to make sure that we're putting that in Mm -hmm. layman's terms for folks Mm -hmm. listening. I wanted to ask one more question before we wrap up in terms of the recommendations from the Columbia Food Policy Committee. Um, So as you said, number one up there is access, right, to nutritious food. So can you tell us a bit about the program that the Columbia Food Policy Committee is working on right now to have a mobile market? So that communities, um, you know, especially in the North Columbia area that don't have ready access to a grocery store where they can get quality fruits and vegetables can have that access. Because we know communities um, in those areas are shopping at Dollar Tree and, and, and Family, Dollar. Family Dollar and places like that that have, you know, only canned fruits and vegetables, but nothing fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I think, you know, one of the projects, right, that the committee is working on. Mm-hmm. So definitely, I mean, th- there's a lot that can be done with that. I think it's a lot of angles in how do you support local. So one, you know, having a mobile market. So we're looking at 0304, which are some of our most uh, food vulnerable com- communities or, or zip codes within within the city limits, but also looking at you can employ people. So the goal would be, so thinking about all of the wonderful things. So Christina really brought it home, talking about how we value people, how we want to empower people, not just through the Columbia Food Policy Committee, but the way I look at it is hopefully the Columbia Food Policy Committee provides the city, other municipalities, the state, other folks, a different way to do business. And so if we look at it from a way we can hire local, we can pay folks a livable wage, Maybe we can prioritize some underserved or underrepresented communities to be, I will say the city does not want to be the owner operator of this mobile market. So maybe we can prioritize maybe a woman or someone of color to be able to be that, that, that owner operator. There's a lot of things that can be done that also reflect the values um, of the Columbia Food Policy Committee, but also what we heard directly from the mouths of Columbia residents in that process. So you also can work with local farmers mm-hmm. to obtain products that can be sold directly to Columbia residents. I mean, you can accept SNAP, you can do healthy bucks to also make it more affordable for individuals. So I think it's a lot that can be done, but definitely this is something that we've been working on for months. Um, you know, but definitely, you know, with with some funding opportunities coming coming down, um, definitely hoping that this is something we can get cross our fingers rolling in 2021 uh, within within the, the city of Columbia. But hopefully this will also be something that not just can serve the city. So thinking about I always try to put in my mind, yes, we are the city of Columbia, but the city is nestled within the county. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't be looking at ourselves as things that benefit should only benefit within the city limits. If it can benefit the entire county, it should. And so hopefully this is something that also can serve, you know, 29223, some of the lower Richland side, some of those other areas, some along for the long Broad River Road that nestles into the county that we know also has challenges when it when it comes to accessing food. So hopefully this is something again Fingers crossed we can get rolling out. (laughs) We can get rolling out, but definitely something that can be able to provide, you know, really good quality, affordable food and being able to do it instead of, you know, you coming to the store, the store is coming to you. And so hopefully this is something um, that, that we can, a concept that we can get rolling out really soon. I think, too, in terms of workers being able to support their right to organize and them having a voice in in the workplace, because despite all of this, food workers 
have been keeping us fed one and two they've been uh, they've been organizing mm-hmm. right for better protections and, and fair pay and so we've seen um, at Food Chain Workers Alliance and, and our members we've seen um, New York workers uh, who won mandatory health and safety protections from COVID uh, for all workers in their state. Um, mm. Last year, we saw warehouse workers in California who um, won health and safety councils um, at their workplaces. We saw Burgerville workers in Portland, Oregon, who um, became the first fast food uh, union. Uh, workers t- to unionize in the country. Mm. Um, and so I think recognizing that those that put food on our table um, deserve uh, to have, you know, respect, deserve to have a good life. And, you know, that's why we see mm-hmm. workers' rights as, as human rights, mm-hmm. why Food Chain Workers Alliance um, is working in solidarity with workers to build power all across the supply chain and ensuring that when we think about right to organize for our workers in the workplace, that that's not a bad thing. That is absolutely critical. It's so important. And it is what um, really ensures that, um, you know, we're valuing and respecting um, the workers that, that feed us and that they can share in the wealth of their labor at the end of the day. And, I mean, I... I think the only way, and this is like me personally, me talking from experience, from having always been part of a union, like it's wild to come down here and (laughs) have the protections of a union. It's, you know, is the only way that we're going to achieve rights for workers and 100% behind uh, union organizing. It's, I mean, difficult in this state, but also to add to that list, Buffalo, Starbucks unionized. Yes. Bar, Alabama, um, Amazon distribution side mm-hmm. is having their um, vote again for unionization mm-hmm. soon. Because uh, of the union busting that because, happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, by the exactly. managers there. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there is, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing, I think, a really important movement because of COVID in, un- mm-hmm. in workers' yeah. rights. And That's it's a right. really exciting time. Um, you know, and it's this younger generation, maybe, I don't know, but I saw someone on, on Twitter called Gen Z Gen U for Gen Union. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I always call Lena, because I have this other podcast, it's called Gen Z Explains, so I've changed it to Gen U Explains. Like, I think there's, there's, there's something going on. I think we can say that yeah. we're, you know, that there is mm-hmm. some really important labor, um, wins like even here in South Carolina like the University of South Carolina just instituted $12 minimum Mm -hmm. wage for full-time workers Mm -hmm. at the university but you know and I think there's a union at the university and they're they're playing an important part um in that movement so it's it's an exciting time to support your local union Mm -hmm. (laughs) and workers who are organizing yes yeah so I guess to close this out um first of all this has been great I again started off by saying I was outnumbered um but I feel very educated by folks who are working in food policy so thank you so much for bringing your wealth of knowledge um your expertise your experience working in this space um and I hope that for folks like me that didn't necessarily know all this information or at least not at this depth that it sparked something in you to be more supportive, to be more aware, to be more engaged. And so on that note, for folks that don't do this work and for folks that, you know, they are in a whole nother space, but this just intrigued them, what can the collective whole do now as a community in Columbia to make sure that we push forward in this stuff? 
Well, I would definitely say right now, what is the Columbia Food Policy Committee doing? We are like restructuring, 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 <laughs> like strategic planning mode. And, and, and I say that as a good thing because I think it's all about when we look at ourselves, yes, we have these recommendations, but everything that this committee does wants to reflect the values. Everything this committee does wants to be really, I look at it as, you know, we're just elite liaison mm -hmm. between the community and city council. That's what we should be. We should not necessarily be all these fancy people, you know, looked at all these fancy people with these degrees and things on this group, but serving as really a catalyst to really help support community members to be able to vocalize what they want and what they want their city to do about their local food needs. Mm -hmm. And so I think really that's what we've been trying to do. And so where we're, we're at now is really to make sure that folks from every zip code, folks, if you are a zero nayer, thousand nayer, million, maybe the millionaire might not want to be part of, but all of those <laughs> variety of scales feels that, you know, I feel welcome from the Columbia Food Policy Committee, from a subcommittee meeting, to a, you know, once a month meeting that I feel like I can be engaged. I feel that, you know, if I'm a person that doesn't have XYZ come up behind my name, that city council will welcome mm -hmm. my mm -hmm. application when I submit to be a part of this group. Cause maybe, you know, I'm a single mom and I'm on WIC currently. And so I can bring a real world perspective of what it's like to have to deal with various systems. Maybe other folks on the committee or even folks on council have never had to deal with. So yes. hopefully, you know, my, my hope is that, you know, we do the intentional work to make ourselves better, to be a better uh, voice, a better advocate for this work within the city and make sure, you know, cause Christina's messed that she's a former member. I got about a year and a half in this. My goal is I want to be replaced, <laughs> not by someone like me. I want to be replaced with somebody like, that's like that single mom on WIC. Mm -hmm. So if we do the work now, cause we all have to think about secession planning, thinking about if we do the work now that this may look even differently. We had, we're in our, like now our, our like second, we're on like Columbia Food Policy 2.0. So when we get to like Columbia Food Policy 3.0, that it even looks better, more diverse, more accurate of, of, of what Columbia really looks like. So that is really my hope. And, and I think it's important to, you know, to share with folks that we're trying to do the work, um, you know, and, and be transparent and being open and honest of how can we, how can we do this better? Mm. Um, and, of, of making sure that we get this right because this work is too important not to do that work. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of wh where we are. So again, we got subcommittees. We got a full <laughs> position that's going to soon come available. So if sure. you are interested, we, we would love to have you. We don't want you know, to come off as, as a closed off group, but a group that, that welcomes folks from all various backgrounds who all care about making this city better mm -hmm. um, as it relates to our local food system. Yeah. I, and just a plug for the mobile market project too, there's uh, a lot of ways to, to plug into that locally um, since that project is, is just getting going. Oh, yeah. um, I think uh, welcome to join Food Chain Workers Alliance on any social media platforms if you're interested in learning more about how to stand in solidarity with frontline food workers. And particularly every November we do Food Worker Rising, which is um, provides a lot of opportunities like uh, 10 days of, of actions around the Thanksgiving holiday to recognize mm. 
how this food does get to our, our tables, right? Um, and then also, if you have any questions or want to learn more about the recommendations that the committee put forth, there's a full report with um, plenty of details on that process and who was involved um, and what those recommendations specifically are. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. I also want to add that the uh, Food Chain Workers Alliance had an excellent report last year about the effects of COVID-19 on food chain workers, and it, w it was just excellent. So I also recommend that. And if you're asking me the one thing people can do, I would say support the right, uh, the fight for 15. That's mm. definitely my number one kind of engagement. Any way you can support that, um, you know, calling up your legislators or signing a petition or, you know, coming out in solidarity uh, with um, low-income workers, definitely the fight for 15, I think, would be uh, very helpful. And, you know, we were almost there with the um, with the ARP, you know, and there's, so there's momentum, I think. Um, you know, from, as someone who works in food policy in this city, I would definitely say, um, you know, support local food systems if mm -hmm. you can it's sometimes it is a bit more expensive but if you have the possibility to do that definitely do that um in terms of um you know uh food share south carolina um check out yeah follow us on social medias check us out you know we're really trying to uh have a, a better social media presence where we talk about food justice issues and food system issues uh so please do engage with us on that I was just going to say, in terms of Fight for 15, also the Charleston Alliance for Fair Employment have been doing really great work around that in, in the low country, too. Mm. Just shout out to them. Yeah. Thank you all so much Thanks for having all us. Thanks, yeah. So much for your time, for real, and coming out. And um, I look forward to this conversation continuing. Thank you all so much for having us. Yeah. It's been great to be here. Thank you. All right. Big thanks again to Christina and Ashley for joining us here on Soda City Speaks. We will link to their organizations and to some of the stuff that we were talking about in that interview in the show notes. So check that out. And we've come to the end of this wonderful episode of Soda City Speaks. And uh, here are your community listings for what to check out in Colombia in the month of February. Trustus Theater has a storied history of bringing innovative, high-quality theater to Columbia, and Tick, Tick, Boom is no exception. This autobiographical piece written by Jonathan Larson, the composer of Rent, will leave you feeling nostalgic, touched, and ready to download the award-winning soundtrack. Trustus encourages all of us to join for a fun, meaningful evening of theater. The show runs February 4th through 26th on the Thigpen main stage, and tickets are available for purchase at trustus.org or by calling the box office at 803-254-9732. I did not know, I did not realize that they renamed the main stage after... Um, Kay Thigpen, who Kay just Thigpen. recently yeah. passed away. Yep. So, uh, good to see that. And I am very excited about this show. Um, I definitely will be going, I'm going to see it. going to see the show. <laughs> There's some great local talent in the show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and as a lover of rent, I'm so excited. Very exciting. Keep the Midlands Beautiful is hosting a volunteer litter pickup on Saturday, February 12th from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. as part of its Spotless Service Saturday Cleanup Program. Volunteers will remove litter from Hartscrabble Road, Registration is free and all supplies will be provided. I need a man. Oh. <laughs> okay. Then. 
you had one. I have one. Thank you. Hilarious Interactive Dinner Theater is on Saturday, February 19th at 7 p.m. at the WOW Performing Arts Center on Two Notch Road. Tickets are $45. Whether single or married, male or female, this relationship conversation starter is a hilarious and thought-provoking interactive dinner theater production. Interesting concept. All right. Two new exhibits are coming to the Columbia Museum of Art this month. Anila Kayum Aga, Let a Million Flowers Bloom, and Rodin, Contemplation and Dreams. Both start their run on February 18th and run until May. Check out the CMA website for more details. The 12th annual Mardi Gras Columbia is on Saturday, February 26th at City Roots Farm. $5 for adults and free for kids 12 and under. Start with the parade through the Rosewood neighborhood and stay for 12 bands on three stages. It is a lot of fun. If you have not been to the Mardi Gras at City Roots, it really, Sounds it's great. a fun time. It's really and fun. And I love City Roots. It's a great spot. Black History Parade and Festival will also take place on Saturday, February 26th from 1 to 5 p.m. The parade starts at the corner of Hampton Street and Hardin Street and will wind to MLK Park where there will be a festival. It's free and this is the 17th annual celebration and it will have live entertainment, education, vendors and kids activities. And those are your community listings and the end of this month's Soda City Speaks. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're doing a call out for local Columbia musicians. If you would like your music featured here on the show, hit us up, sodacityspeaks at gmail.com. And we will make sure to get that on there for you so the world can hear. Well, mostly probably just Columbia people. Just Columbia, yeah. probably. But there's a few <laughs> listeners in Puerto Rico and we Germany. Do. We don't yeah. know where they, you know, but they're listening. Thanks for listening. Yeah. You two Shout out. out. Shout out. <laughs> yeah, please um, send that our way. And a uh, reminder to follow us on all the socials, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Soda City Speaks. Our email is sodacityspeaks at gmail.com. Please feel free to connect with us on all of those platforms with suggestions, feedback, or if you just want to say hey. Our theme music, always, by Preach Jacobs. And you can follow him at Preach Jacobs on all the social medias. All the social medias. All the social medias, then. <laughs> and as always, the show is produced and hosted by myself, Dylan Gunnels, and... Oh, Miss Alma Rahantula. And join us next month and let Soda City speak, speak to, to you. you.